Good evening. Lula wins round one. Nevertheless, a surprise showing by Bolsonaro sends Brazil's election into overtime. Ukraine and Russia, the fear of nuclear war intensifies, and an insurgent socialist wants to lead the United Auto Workers. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the news for Monday, October 3rd, 2022. Today, North Korea fired an intermediate-range ballistic missile that soared over Japan for the first time in five years, forcing Japan to issue evacuation notices and suspend trains during the flight of the weapon that's capable of reaching the U.S. territory of Guam. The United States condemned the launch as dangerous and reckless. Japan's defense minister says the missile's estimated flight distance is believed to be the longest among the past North Korea-launched missiles. And the Pan-American Health Organization warned of a possible cholera outbreak in Haiti, a country where this disease has not been reported for three years. Most of the cholera victims died in their residences due to the difficulties ambulances have entering certain neighborhoods due to roads blocked by gang wars or protests against Prime Minister Ariel Henry. The disease proliferates in situations of extreme poverty where basic services are precarious or non-existent. It causes extreme diarrhea, leading to dehydration and death in a short time unless the victim is rehydrated. In the past decade, more than 10,000 Haitians have died from the disease. And on Sunday, United Nations Special Envoy for Yemen, Hans Grunberg, announced that no agreement had been reached to renew the expired truce between the Yemeni warring parties. The proposals submitted on Saturday include the extension of the truce for another six months, salary and pension payments for civil servants. Some haven't been paid for seven years. On April 2nd, the Yemeni government and the Houthis agreed upon a two-month truce brokered by the United Nations. The truce was later renewed twice through October 2nd. Yemen has been mired in a civil war since late 2014, causing one of the biggest humanitarian crises in the world. In Brazil, the Electoral Tribunal confirmed that the Workers' Party candidate Lula da Silva won 48.42% of the vote in Sunday's presidential election, while President Jair Bolsonaro got 43.2%, sending the election to a runoff on October 30th. Meanwhile, the accolades poured in from fellow progressive leaders throughout Latin America. Colombia's President Gustavo Petro posted a message congratulating Lula, as did Argentine President Alberto Fernandez, Bolivian President Luis Arce, and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador. Despite coming in first, Lula's victory was a disappointment. Polls had showed Bolsonaro with fewer votes than he actually got, and Bolsonaro's right-wing coalition won the majority of seats in Brazil's Congress. Analysts suggest voters have been embarrassed to tell pollsters they backed Bolsonaro and instead listed another candidate. Brazil's election was closely watched by politicians in the United States. Former President Donald Trump endorsed Bolsonaro, who's been nicknamed the Trump of the tropics and shares many of Trump's values and views. To the people of Brazil, you have a great opportunity to re-elect a fantastic leader, a fantastic man, one of the great presidents of any country in the world, President Bolsonaro. He's done an absolutely incredible job with your economy, with your country. He's respected by everybody all throughout the world. So I strongly endorse President Bolsonaro. He will be your leader for hopefully a long time. He has taken your country to great heights. 
And again, your country is now respected because of him all over the world. So go out and vote for Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro has made statements similar to Trump's about elections. He said the only reason he could lose the election was if it was stolen, prompting Senator Bernie Sanders to warn from the Senate chamber about efforts to undermine democracy in Brazil. The current president and candidate for re-election, Mr. Bolsonaro, has made some very provocative statements which suggest that he might not accept the election results if he loses. Back in September 2018, before he won his election, Bolsonaro stated, and I quote, I will not accept an election result that is not my own victory, end of quote. But it is the business of the United States to make clear to the people of Brazil that our government will not recognize or support a government that comes to power through a military coup or the undermining of a democratic election. Unlike Trump, Sanders didn't endorse any candidate, saying it's inappropriate for a U.S. citizen to get involved in another country's election. The director of international policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research is Alexander Maine. He says the election in Brazil had an unexpected ending because voters seemed to shy away from telling pollsters who they really voted for. It's a mixed result. On the one hand, Lula nearly made it to 50 percent, which was the threshold that he needed to win in the first round. He had 48.5 percent, which was consistent with the polling. But the part that wasn't consistent with the polling was Bolsonaro, his far-right rival, the incumbent president of Brazil, who obtained 43.5% of the vote when he was expected to be in the low 30s, according to the polling, which suggests that there was something like, known in the U.S. as a Bradley effect. Basically, people were ashamed to say who they were actually voting for. They indicated that they were voting for some of the more minor candidates who ended up with much less votes than was expected. We ended up with a very different result in terms of the margin of difference between the two. But in terms of Lula's results, he actually did pretty well. He did about as well as he's ever done in any presidential elections in the past. And of course, he was president for two terms, the first decade of the 2000s. In Congress, it's looking bad for his party, the Workers' Party. They are the second biggest party now when they used to be the first biggest. They're at 80 members. And it's Bolsonaro's party that is well over 100 between the lower house and the Senate. And they've also picked up a number of governors. We're really seeing a configuration that stretches from the far right to the center right that dominates in the Congress. And it's going to be very hard for Lula, who's still expected to win the second round of the elections on the 30th, but it's going to be very hard for him to work with this Congress and, and get much done in his legislative agenda. Stop the steal. It's a rumor that there's actually Trump organizers down there helping Bolsonaro, uh, the Trump of the tropics. Do you think there's going to be a stop the steal kind of movement there as well? There already is, in a sense. I mean, Bolsonaro launched that a few months ago. He started questioning the whole electoral system. He's asking for the military to be involved in verifying the results of the elections, which is, of course, not their role at all. It's kind of a very dangerous precedent if that goes forward. You have President Trump, who's been directly involved in the campaign. He sent him a short, very enthusiastic endorsement over a video just yesterday that came out. People close to Trump, like 
Steve Bannon have been down in Brazil a lot. A lot of exchanges between the Trump world and the Bolsonaro world that have been going on now for, for quite a while. And Bolsonaro has been inspired by January 6th. They're really trying to set the stage for something similar and potentially for the second round if it's close, which it looks like it could well be quite close given that Bolsonaro is far higher than what was originally expected. So it's going to make it easier for him to contest the results, especially as he's been using the flawed polling results to say, look, you say that the whole system is rigged against me. You can just see it in all these official polls that have come out. What's the draw of Bolsonaro? How is it that a person who's done as badly with the economy and as badly with the COVID-19 response as Trump did, and that got Trump defeated, what is the source of his popularity? There are two things, really. One is just the stigmatization of the Workers' Party for years and years by a lot of the right-wing media in Brazil that dominates the whole media scene, characterizing Lula and the whole Workers' Party as, you know, impossibly corrupt. Lula did end up in jail on corruption charges, although afterwards, you know, it was revealed that, you know, not only were the charges, you know, quite clearly trumped up and there wasn't much basis for them, but also the judge was uh, conspiring with the prosecutors in the case. They clearly had a political agenda, sort of created a permanent stain on the Workers' Party, and they were seen as part of the corrupt political establishment. Bolsonaro has been successful in positioning himself as an outsider, very anti-systemic, who's really going to bring down the Workers' Party and the elites of the country, even though there's some big corruption cases that he's also, he and his family are, are very much involved in. The second thing is that he's been able to channel xenophobia and racism, very deeply entrenched conservative impulses in a lot of Brazilian society. I think it's important to acknowledge the role of the evangelical church in, in these elections. They've been very, just as in the U.S., they've been very involved in, in politics, and, and they, at this point, represent a big, big chunk of the electorate. They vote on a very, very conservative sort of platform that uh, Bolsonaro, of course, has done a good job at promoting. These are the sort of factors that have helped and done a good job at scapegoating minorities that aren't even minorities because, you know, the Brazilians of African descent are actually the majority in Brazil. There's a clear racist and class divide that you're seeing as well, where you have the much whiter and effectively richer south of Brazil that's voting much more for Bolsonaro and, and the northeast of Brazil, where you have a lot more Afro-Brazilians that are voting overwhelmingly for Lula and for the Workers' Party. What's your uh, prediction for the runoff? It does look like Lula only needs essentially a little bit over one and a half percentage points more to win these elections. And the two more minor candidates are more likely, much more likely to go to Lula than to Bolsonaro. Sort of turnout in the second round of the election with higher levels of abstention of Workers' Party voters and higher levels of participation of Bolsonaro voters, it seems very unlikely Bolsonaro could win. However, it looks like there's going to be a tighter result than what was expected. And again, this is going to make it easier for Bolsonaro to do a, a sort of a Trump strategy of trying to discredit the vote, mobilize his supporters and the military to contest uh, the final results. And that could lead to a very dangerous situation.
Alexander Maine is Director of International Policy at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Brazil's presidential runoff election happens on October 30th. And in national news, a federal prosecutor contended Monday that Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers extremist group and four associates, planned an armed rebellion to keep Donald Trump in power. Assistant U.S. Attorney Jeffrey Nessler told jurors their goal was to stop by whatever means necessary the lawful transfer of presidential power, including by taking up arms against the United States government. The defendants are the first among hundreds of people arrested at the Capitol riot. They'll stand trial on seditious conspiracy charges, a rare Civil War-era law that calls for up to 20 years behind bars. The trial comes as Trump continues to insist, without evidence, that the 2020 election was stolen from him. Defense attorneys accuse prosecutors of cherry-picking comments from messages and videos and that they have no evidence of a plot to attack the Capitol. During a December interview, Rhodes called senators traitors and warned that the Oath Keepers would have to overthrow, abort, or abolish Congress. Rhodes described January 6th as a hard constitutional deadline for stopping the transfer of power. Rhodes' attorneys planned to argue Rhodes believed Trump was going to invoke the Insurrection Act and call up a militia. Prosecutors say it's clear the Oath Keepers were going to act regardless of what Trump did. Former President Donald Trump praised Jenny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, after she testified to the January 6th Select Committee that she still believes the 2020 election was stolen. A great woman named Ginny Thomas. Do you know Ginny Thomas? She's a great woman. The wife of a great man, Justice Clarence Thomas, for her courage and strength in saying, according to the standard and routine leaks from the committee. You know, everything leaks out of those committees. They're like a leaking sieve. They're just like a leaking sieve. But she said that she still believes the 2020 election was stolen. She didn't say, oh, well, uh, I'd like not to get involved. Of course, it was a wonderful election. It was a rigged and stolen election. She didn't wait and sit around and say, well, let me give you maybe a different answer that I've been saying for the last two years now. Now, she didn't wilt under pressure like so many others that are weak people and stupid people, because once they wilt, they end up being a witness for a long time. She said what she thought. She said what she believed in. Too many Republicans are weak and they're afraid, and they better get strong fast or you're not going to have a Republican Party and you're not going to have a country anymore. Meanwhile, January 6th committee chair Benny Thompson told reporters on Friday that Thomas continues to cling to these bogus election conspiracy theories. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas has been blocking the January 6th committee from accessing text messages sent by his wife to Trump's chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Allegedly, she urged Meadows to overturn the results of the election and press state lawmakers to ignore Biden's victory. In war news from Ukraine, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, the UN's nuclear watchdog, says the director general for Ukraine and Europe's largest power plant, Ihor Moroshov, has been released from Russian custody after his detention last week. Moroshov was blindfolded and detained after leaving the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant on Friday. 
In other news, the Russian military on Monday acknowledged Kyiv's forces have broken through Moscow's defenses in the Kyrgyzstan region, but a Russian defense ministry spokesperson added Ukrainian troops continue to take heavy losses. Meanwhile, the lower house of the Russian parliament voted Monday to endorse the treaties for four regions of Ukraine to join Russia. The unanimous vote by the state Duma followed the signing of the treaties by Russian President Vladimir Putin and the leaders of the four regions on Friday. In related news, the United National Anti-War Coalition bills itself as the largest and broadest anti-war and social justice coalition in the United States. The group says it's going back to the streets for protests across the U.S. and around the world, calling an end to the war in Ukraine. In New York City, the rally will be at Fordham Plaza in the Bronx on Saturday, October 15th. Organizer Joe Lombardo spoke the news. He says the U.S. is spilling Ukrainian blood in an unwinnable war. After the coup, the U.S. military trained the Ukraine military, trained it up from a very small military to the fifth largest in, in the world, gave them modern weapons, trained them, including the Nazi battalions. It was a very big threat for Russia. What the United States wants to try to stretch and hurt Russia, especially through economic sanctions and the war, they were going to hopefully cause rebellion within Russia. And I think your ultimate target is actually China. They talked about breaking up Russia into five pieces that they could control, and that's part of the surrounding of, of China that they want to do, because China is challenging the United States economically. And We were the number one power after World War II. We brought stability to the world. If we have a multipolar world, if we allow this to happen, I think Henry Kissinger, 97, 99 years old, I heard him repeating this. So I couldn't believe he was saying it himself, that uh, the U.S. has a right to keep a unipolar world because that's a more stable world and that if we let it become multipolar, these uh, crazy foreigners will drag us into nuclear war like Russia has been threatening to do. What's yeah. really happening with the sanctions, it's the U.S. and especially Europe. I'm actually in Europe right now as we're talking. It's being tremendously hurt. There's double-digit inflation, there's recession, there's uh, strikes all over Britain where I am right now. People don't think they're going to make it through through the winter because there won't be enough fuel and and the prices have gone way up on, on fuel and food and other things. These are due to the sanctions that we sanctioned on Russia, but they survived during this period most of the countries have not supported the sanctions. None of them in Latin America, none of them in Africa, only three in Asia. That is, the global South has not supported these sanctions. And countries like China and India, the two biggest countries in population in the world, and most of the global South is starting to relate to the new economic structures that China and Russia are putting up. And this could be very devastating for the U.S. rule and hegemony that the U.S. has has tried to maintain over the world for its own sake of profit. And I think it will hurt some of us in the West for a period of time. But in the long run, working people will be helped by not having this major imperialist power that dominates the world. In New York City, there'll be one up in the Bronx. It will be held on October 15th at 1 p.m., on Fordham Plaza, which is East Fordham Road and Park Avenue across from the Metro North Station. So we hope people will join us up there because... Now it's the U.S., just because you brought up nuclear war, the U.S. is saying that Russia is the one who uh, keeps bringing up this nuclear war thing. Look at Putin's speech, actually. I read it mm -hmm. twice. Nowhere does he say that, what he says. If you intend to use nuclear weapons against us, 
we have nuclear weapons too and we can respond. That's all that he said. But we have been threatening all along. Britain, uh, their new prime minister, Liz Trust, was asked if she would use nuclear weapons. And she said, yes. And they said, could you really say yes? And she said, yes. I said, yes. And Russia has been said that the United States has made covert and overt um, approaches to them where uh, they have made some warnings that sound very much like it could be. If, if it looks like the U.S. is losing in this war of hegemony around the world, they could use nuclear weapons. Joe Lombardo is an organizer with the United National Anti-War Coalition. In related news, the International Energy Agency said Monday Europe faces unprecedented risks to its natural gas supplies this winter. The EU on Friday agreed to make mandatory a 5% reduction in energy consumption during peak hours. High prices for natural gas, which is used for heating homes, generating electricity, and a host of industrial processes, are fueling record consumer inflation of 10% in the 19 EU nations that share the euro currency. And closer to home, over the last five years, the United Auto Workers has been experiencing a troubling chapter of corruption. A federal investigation found widespread corruption, including top officials who embezzled more than $1 million for luxury travel. In one of the changes prompted by the corruption scandal, the union this year will choose its leaders through a direct election, the first time in its history. The incumbent president, Ray Curry, is seen as the favorite to win, but insurgent socialist candidate Will Lehman tells the news in this exclusive interview that auto workers are ready for change in a more internationalist outlook. I saw multiple betrayals at my time being a UAW member, uh, the sellout of the Mack truck strike in 2019, the sellout of the New River Valley Volvo strike in 2021. The reality is workers know what direction we want to fight in. We just need a democratic say in how to do that. Workers at the Volvo plant started a rank and file committee with the idea of being a part of the International Workers Alliance and rank and file committees. And we started one of Mack trucks to support them when this whole corruption scandal opened up the opportunity to run for president. I decided that it'd be good to do and it'd be good to do to specifically promote the idea of building rank and file committees and taking power to the shop floor. Other candidates are running on this idea of they can reform the UAW bureaucracy. And I do want workers to see two very distinct layers that serve two distinct set of interests. When I talk about the bureaucracy, I'm talking about the reps, the solidarity house that keep dead ending these fights. When I'm talking about the workers, I'm talking about the people on the floor building everything, paying the dues, you know, putting the work in. Workers on the floor should have a direct say in everything that goes on themselves, mm-hmm. and they can do that using rank-and-file committees. Some say that uh, the day of uh, big union organizing, industrial unions, is over. Uh, what do you say to that? I would say that the reason it's failing is because it's proven itself to keep dead-ending things and keep operating under capitalism with a, an America-only mindset when production is global. Workers absolutely need organizations that they have power in. It's not going to look like a traditional trade union. They keep selling workers out, whether it's teachers in the NEA, teachers in the AFT, Kellogg's workers in BCTGM. These trade unions keep selling the workers out. We're not making any headway with them. So we need an organization that we control. And I think that can be found in the rank and file committee approach. It's not a traditional trade union. And it has an international aspect to it 
because we recognize that production is globalized. We have no enemies in the working class anywhere else in the world, but we need to organize with workers everywhere else in the world. Now you identify as socialist. Is that in this era right now, are people accepting the fact that how do you define being a socialist? It's, it's healthy to point out what capitalism is and that we're under capitalism now, and these are the conditions workers face. The idea that only a few can profit while the vast majority labor, that's capitalism. Whereas socialism, uh, the idea is that workers have a direct democratic control and say in how we carry out the work, how we distribute the profit, with a goal of reaching equality with everyone. We can distribute profit based on human need and not based on a narrow few having the the vast majority of the wealth in society. A lot of workers have questions, naturally. There's been a lot of confusion about socialism in the past, a lot of propaganda against socialism, but capitalism keeps revealing itself to have failed workers extremely badly, and now there's built up to war against Russia, the U.S. and NATO trying to divide up Russia and sending arms to Ukraine, when the reality is workers don't want war. We don't want weapons going over there. We have no enemies in the Russian and Ukrainian working class. And same thing with China. I have no enemies in the Chinese working class. And a lot of workers do see that. We're not pushing these things, and uh, it needs to be drawn out, you know, what capitalism is and what we can do differently to end these kinds of conflicts. What do you think of this push towards electric vehicles? As far as, you know, it being a green solution, well, when you put a battery that's Uh, three times the size of what they put in the Chevrolet Bolt, and you make uh, this giant truck that gets terrible mile per gallon equivalent, no, that's not green. When you can make three economy cars for that one battery, workers need to have a say in how the industry is changing, and workers need to advance our interests, not what capitalists like GM and Mary Bear are advancing. I want workers to have their backs in every factory, uh, every safety incident that goes on, Uh, The company turns the other way on or tries to blame the worker. The reality is the companies and the unions set up those conditions. If we're going to be risking ourselves, we should be dictating the conditions we're working under. Will Lehman is a socialist candidate to head up the United Auto Workers Union in its first direct election for this spot in the union's history. Auto workers have had a roller coaster experience in recent years, giving up major contract concessions in 2009, but earning $10,000 bonuses earlier this year. And that's some of the news for Monday, October 3rd, 2022. The news is written and produced by myself, Paul DiRienzo. You can get the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.